target universalism, in a sense, is a deeper understanding of equity. Equity, as opposed to equality, recognizes that people are situated differently. So you don't, the goal is not to, to treat everyone the same, but to treat everyone fairly. Welcome to another episode of Who Belongs, a podcast produced by the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society at UC Berkeley. In this episode, we hear from Johnny Powell, who is our director and a professor of law and African-American studies here at UC Berkeley. In the interview, we discuss a brand new primer we've just published on the targeted universalism policy approach, which is a model conceptualized by Professor Powell. The primer was co-written by Professor Powell along with assistant director Stephen Menendian and Wendy Ake, who is the director of the Just Public Finance Program. To summarize, targeted universalism is a platform to put into practice social programs that move all groups towards a universal policy goal. It supports the needs of the most marginalized groups, as well as those who are more politically powerful, while reminding everyone that we're all a part of the same social fabric. In the interview, I refer to the publication as a report, though it's more accurate to describe it as a kind of instruction manual and working document to help guide policymakers and others to develop their own targeted universalist strategies and put them into practice. Now enjoy our conversation with Professor John A. Powell. Hi, John. This is, I think, your first time on our podcast, Who Belongs, so welcome and thank you for joining us today. It's good to be here, Mark. So you've just published this new report on targeted universalism called Targeted Universalism Policy and Practice, along with Stephen Menendian and Wendy Ake. Mm-hmm. And so let's just start off by defining what does it mean broadly, targeted universalism. So targeted universalism is actually, you can think of it, I refer to it as equity 2.0. So a lot of the people listening, I assume, will be familiar with equity. So targeted universalism, in a sense, is a deeper understanding of equity. And um, equity as opposed to equality recognizes that people are situated differently. So you don't, the goal is not to, to treat everyone the same, but to treat everyone fairly. And so equity basically says, because people are situated differently, you treat them differently. But the way most people understand equity is that you want to close the disparities between the favorite group and everybody and the most marginal group. Uh, and that's too narrow. That's really not what we want to do. And an example would be, a few years ago we would say about 75% of whites as the favorite group in this discussion are, have adequate health care. And only about 45% of blacks and Latinos had really good health care. So you close the disparity. Well, there are a lot of ways to close the disparities. You can say, let's meet in the middle. So 60% of each group should have adequate health care. Or you might say we take a the other groups all the way to 75%. But that's not the goal. The goal is for every person to have adequate health care, good health care, to live a full and productive life. So what Turkey Universalism does is to say, we actually have universal goals we're trying to achieve. We need to state what those are. And the universal goals is not simply closing disparities. Now, there's a way of actually defining what those universal goals are in a process. But once we actually have those goals, then we have to say, in order to get to those goals, the goals are universal. The strategy to get to those goals are targeted based on how different groups are situated, both in terms of our structures uh, and in terms of our culture. So a couple of examples. Let's say we have an escalator. 
that takes people to the second floor from the first floor. Well, it turns out that someone in a wheelchair can't use an escalator effectively. Uh, so the goal is to get people to the second floor. The structure that we developed to do that is the escalator. The escalator has hidden biases in it. And every structure has some hidden bias or normative practice associated with it. Usually, we're blind to it. You go to a baseball game, you go to the bathroom. The bathrooms literally are designed for men, men in and out. They're not designed so well for women. So you see women in these long lines. Um, so what targeting diversity says is that people are situated differently. Uh, groups are situated differently. And it's racialized oftentimes, and it's gendered, and it's based on people's ability. Uh, and saying, okay, let's look at the goal. And the goal is not to give what we think the favorite group has, but to think of the goal independent of the favorite group. And then let's actually develop targeted strategies based on that. A couple of things. One, the goal is not to, to just focus on the most marginal group, which oftentimes we do in terms of equity as well. We say, this is the favorite group, and the most marginal group is this group. It could be Native Americans. It could be any group you want it to be. Uh, what about everybody in between? Uh, so target universalism is clear that the goal is to get everybody to that universal goal. But to do that, we have to actually develop different kinds of strategies. And it's not because we prefer one group or the other group. It's because people have different needs. People are situated differently, both in structures and in culture. Um, so that's the heart of target universalism. It actually takes the idea of equity and sort of shifts the way we think about disparities, which are important, but say that's not the major focus. The major focus is that universal. We need to be explicit what the universal is, not just assume. Uh, and we can debate what the universal is, but then to develop the appropriate strategies to get people there and to get all people there. Okay. I'm, I'm happy you mentioned healthcare a little bit earlier because I think that's something a lot of people can relate to, everyone can relate to. And so it provides a good frame for the next question is how how that sort of approach differs from a universal approach. So let's use a Canadian-style single-payer healthcare system, for example, that covers everyone. What's wrong with that? Well, oftentimes when, when uh, a universal approach oftentimes really is not a universal goal, but a universal strategy. And oftentimes if people are situated differently and you treat everybody the same, I'm going to give everybody, you know, $10. Well, uh, if I have nothing, $10 is then all I have. If I have a million dollars, I have a million and $10. So if you look at the health care issues in Massachusetts that Governor Romney put in place, what he said is that um, we need to have universal insurance, which is what they have in, in Canada, um, so that everybody has insurance. Okay. Is the goal for everybody to have insurance? We're going to treat everybody the same. Everybody can have insurance. Here's the problem. People are not situated the same. So what happened in, in Massachusetts is that the increase in insurance actually pulled health care providers out of the black and Latino community. The goal wasn't for everybody to have insurance. And it wasn't even the goal having everyone to have access to adequate health care, although that's a deeper goal than insurance. The goal was for everyone to have positive health and, and, uh, and an effective way to actually engage the system to get positive help. Um, you can imagine, for example, there's some places where 
uh, uh, in rural America where you get health insurance, but you live 100 miles from a hospital. So you're not situated the same as people who live next door to the hospital. So we don't want to treat those people the same because they're not situated the same. So if the goal is to get them in to see a doctor or a nurse or a health practitioner, you have to look at how they're situated. Uh, and treating them all the same simply won't do it. One of the exercises I often do at audiences, I'll say, look at the slide on my PowerPoint. There's a bunch of words up there. But I see a lot of you are wearing glasses. Take your glasses off. Now read it. No one has some glasses. We're treating everybody the same. And people without the glasses are squinting and laughing, and they can't read it, right? And I said, okay, all right, then we're going to take your glasses and give it to your neighbor. They can't read either because they're situated differently. And when we talk about race, when we acknowledge or gender uh, or sexual orientation, we think we focus on the people. And we say, you're treating black people differently than you're treating white people. You're treating gays and transgender people differently than you're treating straight people. Uh, and maybe, maybe not. But, the, but Black people are situated differently, oftentimes, than their white counterparts in relationship to both the goal and the structures. So we want to explicate that. We want to talk about how people are situated. Are you situated in a place where there's no active grocery store? Are you situated in a place where there, the schools don't work? Uh, here in California a few years ago, to get into UC Berkeley, the average student needs like a 4.3, which means all, four points, all A's. So what's a 4.3? It means you have basically all A's, but you have AP classes. There were a thousand black and Latino kids who had 4.0's and no, and they went to schools where there were no AP classes. So one might say, we're going to treat everybody the same. If you got a 4.3 or if you, you, you know, you get in. But we are bleaching out. We're literally saying to black and Latino kids who go to these schools where they don't have access to this, that they don't get in at all. Uh, so targeting universalism calls our attention to how people are situated and then asks us to develop strategies, not just for the more favored group, but for everybody. I'll give you one more example, which I like, is that think about an airplane. I spend way too much time on airplanes. Uh, but people who design luggage racks, so that's a structure. You get an airplane, you want to carry your luggage, what's wrong with that? Well, here's the thing. Luggage racks are small. They're also overhead. Uh, women, as a group, tend to carry more luggage. Women, as a group, tend to be shorter. And they have less upper body strength. So that structure is actually privileging men over women. If the goal is actually to have everyone to have, uh, be able to use the airplane to store their luggage, it's actually biased against women in favor of men. But most people don't notice that. Most people don't think about it. Although women often do. Uh, when I tell that story, the women laugh and they say, yeah, I check my luggage. Because uh, I can't lift it up over my head. Uh, so again, if you're designing luggage rights for everyone, you would think about it differently. Mm. And one of the points there is actually that sometimes a universal approach exacerbates inequality among the groups that you're actually trying to help. So, That's exactly right. That's uh, exactly right. I'll give you another great, great example. A lot of people think Social Security is universal. Well, it's not. It's, you had 40, 40 quarters in order to be, get full benefits for Social Security unless they changed it. But then 40 quarters in the formal work. What's formal work? 
housework is not formal work. It used to be housework was not formal work. Domestic work was not formal work. Agriculture was, was not considered formal work. So what's formal work? They define formal work based on the practice largely of white men. And I'm not saying those white men didn't work hard, but the women who stayed at home taking care of the kids were also working. We don't, they don't count. That doesn't count as work. So we had this what looked like a, social, a universal program because it didn't say anything about women. It didn't say anything about the African-Americans who worked as domestic workers or agricultural workers or Latinos. It just said work, but it defined work in such a way that it actually cut a lot of people out. So when we look about, at the universal programs as well as the practice, we have to be very careful that we are not building in our own hidden biases. Let's move on to the next approach then, which is the targeted approach. And we can list some examples of that, anti-poverty programs that were enacted in the 60s, for example, like SNAP, food stamps, um, programs like affirmative action. They all use targeted approaches. So what's the problem there? A couple of things. One is just practical. So if you say targeted approaches oftentimes uh, focus on a group or sometimes uh, so if you say, for example, affirmative action, we're going to focus on, you could say, blacks or Latinos. And, um, and then people always say, what about poor whites living in the Delta or poor whites living in Appalachia? And we say, no, this is not for them. This is for blacks and Latinos because they've suffered from historical discrimination and segregation. And that's true. But so have some whites. So if that's the issue, uh, we don't say we're going to target a group, you said you, instead you should say we're targeting people who are situated in a certain way, and when you look at that, you find there are a range of people. And now uh, Robert Sampson at, at Harvard has said, based on some indicators around um, concentrated poverty, only about 5% of whites, or maybe less, live in concentrated poverty in urbanized areas. Maybe they should be included. I don't see anything what's wrong, what's wrong with that, because we're not talking about someone's skin color. In fact, we forget when we talk about race being socially constructed, how it's constructed is by those structures and conditions. To be black largely means, yes, you are isolated from the resources and opportunities and culture that would allow you to thrive. But there are always some other groups, maybe in small numbers, that are also, and if you just say, I'm focusing on blacks, you immediately invite resentment. If you say you're focusing on people who are poor, then people who are a dollar over being poor are left out. We live here in the Bay Area, and if uh, they talk about housing, um, a person living below the poverty line cannot afford housing in the Bay Area. But at the U.S. level, uh, middle class is somewhere about $50,000. And there was just an article in the paper today saying a family of $50,000 cannot afford a studio in the Bay Area. Uh, so if you say, and, and what they said about this particular, they talk about teachers, they said they make too much money to qualify for those targeted programs, but not enough money to actually buy housing. Uh, so targeted universalism doesn't say we're just going to focus on a group. It says we're going to focus on getting everybody to that universal goal, and which means the most vulnerable group, but it also means the group who is one dollar above the vulnerable group. They may, you may have a different strategy for them. Um, and, and doing that, target universalism becomes a way of operationalizing program, but it also becomes a communication strategy. Because when we say we're picking one group over the other, you, 
you build in resentment and also what we call breaking. Uh, if you do it based on target universalism and do it right, you build the, the cultural foundation to actually have people see their shared situation. One thing you touched on is that it's vulnerable to, it's susceptible to attack by a lot of times the right-wing conservatives. They want to get rid of these programs, cut back on the programs. We saw it with SNAP, for example, in Welfare Reform in 96. And so how does this targeted universalist approach, it has to be more resilient than these other two approaches. So what? how, how do you still target populations but then prevent those vulnerabilities that are a part of the other types of systems? Well, most of the conservative attacks and claims is what's called formalism. That is, we're not going to pay attention. Uh, you either create these binaries, like you're, you're in or you're out, as opposed to a gradient, the saying you may be partially in, you may be partially out. Um, so targeted programs tend to be vulnerable politically because you focus on oftentimes groups that are marginal. By the very fact that they're marginal also means they're marginal politically. And oftentimes there's hostility directed toward them. And there's a lot of literature showing that when you focus on a um, vulnerable group, especially if the group is stigmatized, you invite greater resentment. Uh, and part of the resentment is just because the group is already stigmatized. Um, but part of the resentment is that if I'm close to being poor, but I'm not, and then I feel like my resources, my tax dollars are going to a group that is poor, in the meantime, no one's actually acknowledging my suffering. So target universalism avoids that. It's not saying we're just going to focus on the most vulnerable. It says, yes, we're going to focus on them, but we're also going to focus on those who are near vulnerable. And we're focusing on all the groups to get them to that universal. Now, universal programs tend to be more resilient because it purports to bring in everybody. So that's part of this political resiliency. Uh, but it doesn't really uh, uplift, oftentimes, the most vulnerable. Targeted programs may lift, uplift the most vulnerable, but it tends to be politically unstable and politically vulnerable. I want to make a connection between this and an um, interview I had a couple episodes ago with Hillary Hoynes, who's an expert on SNAP and social safety net programs. And one of the things she looked at was actually the purchasing power of SNAP. And the thing about SNAP is that these vouchers, they're the same across the United States. And so even if you're living in a kind of a rural area somewhere in middle America where the uh, cost of living is a lot lower than somewhere like in the Bay Area, you'd have more purchasing power, mm -hmm. it'd be the same amount. So you're actually a little bit better off over there than you are over right. here. And one of the proposals she had was to adjust the purchasing power of that voucher, that food stamp voucher. So would you consider that something like a targeted, using a targeted universal? That's, that's getting close. So if, if the goal is to say everyone should have the ability to buy so much for their family, uh, then you can't pick a number because what something costs in the Bay Area, as you suggested, as opposed to rural America, is going to be quite different. Uh, the same in terms of housing, if you say, which we've fought for years. There's a, a voucher for housing, and they say, we want to treat everybody the same. That's what fairness is. It's not what fairness is. It's sort of interesting, because the idea of equality and fairness in Western society actually comes from Aristotle. And, and Aristotle understood the concept of target universalism. He talked about arithmetic equality and geometric equality. And arithmetic equality was the assumption that everybody's situated the same. And he says when people are treated, uh, situated the same, you treat everybody the same. But he said when people are situated differently, you treat them differently. We sort of embraced, and especially the conservatives, embraced arithmetic equality. We're going to treat everybody the same. 
but people are not all the same. Uh, so sometimes an example might be here in California, there was an issue about people who didn't speak English, students, and they wanted to give instructions in their native language. And now this may seem uh, ludicrous now, but the idea is that we treat all students the same. We don't discriminate. All the students' instructions are in English. Where if you're Chinese, a student, and you speak Chinese at home, you know, or Hmong, or, or whatever your language is, you don't feel like you're being treated the same. The same in terms of initially when students were, uh, couldn't hear. It's like, well, we're not going to teach you sign. You have to learn to read lips. We're going to treat you just like we do. Teach. And you know the difference, now we've gone beyond that. But that case on language had to go all the way to the Supreme Court because we were so tied to this notion that fairness means treating everybody the same. And it's just simply not. And I like to give the example. I taught at the Ohio State University for many years, almost 10 years. And we had a rule there at uh, the Ohio State University that if, you're, if you rented a car, even if you pay for it off your own pocket, uh, but if you're working um, on Ohio State time, you had to rent a subcompact. Now, you had to rent a what? A subcompact. Like a small SUV? A small, the smallest car there is. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm around 6'4". And I said, no. You know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not even asking the university to pay for it. I'll pay for it. And they said, no. You, the, the, the universal rule is we treat everybody the same. And I said, I'll bet you a dime to a donut. The person who wrote that rule was under six feet. Uh, and what happened was that issue. I mean, one of the deans came to talk to me. I call him the dean of all things unimportant. We're saying, Professor Powell, we have to treat everybody the same. I said, no, you don't. It went all the way to the chancellor, uh, the chancellor of the largest university in the country was dealing with this issue. And the chancellor at the time, or president, was uh, Gordon Gee. He made a special dispensation. He said, okay, you can rent a, a full-size car. But he didn't change the rule. And what that meant is that I was stigmatized. People didn't see the structure. All they saw is that there goes Professor Powell, who thinks he's fancy because he has a big car. But that's the problem with sort of this notion that we treat everybody the same. So equity, and even more so, target universalism, helps us see how people are situated differently and then develop the appropriate treatment based on that. Let's talk a little bit about implementation now. I mean, this is still a concept. This report that you're, you've put out, it's meant to be, I guess, kind of like a working report. It's subject to some changes. Sure. And, um, but I want to know, where do you go now? Actually, it has like a five-step a uh, little guide that you're supposed to follow to be able to achieve targeted universalism. So let's go through them quickly and then just talk about each one. And so, and then let's try to use a real life example. Maybe we can stick to healthcare because it's everyone can relate to it. And so if we start with the first step, it's to establish the universal goal based upon a condition of a broadly shared problem. Yeah, so, so again, what is we're trying to achieve? Whether it's, you, you mentioned healthcare, but it could be healthcare, it could be food, it could be education. We have we generally agree that that's important, and we want to help people achieve that goal. Um, um, and so, the, say what the universal is, and and what we oftentimes do is we get locked in process. It's like, we, again, with healthcare, we're going to get everybody insurance. Well, for some people, that's not the problem. As I suggested, if I live in rural America, 
uh, where I'm 150 miles from a hospital, giving me a piece of paper saying I have insurance has done nothing to affect my access to doctors or access to nurse. So we have to be clear on what the goal is um, and, and then how I'm situated in relationship to structures and culture in terms of getting that. The second, step, the second step is to assess the general population performance relative to the universal goal. And let me combine number two and three. So number two is the general population. Number three is identify groups and places that are performing differently with respect to the, to the goal and of the overall population. Basically doing with disaggregating groups. Uh, as I say, if, if Bill Gates walked in here, the average person in this room, there are two of us, would be a billionaire. You know, but you and I actually, our condition haven't changed. We're just sitting in a room next to Bill Gates. Uh, so we have to disaggregate and say, um, and that's, data is useful in that way. So when we have a, a process that, uh, where women are constantly um, not achieving the goal or Native Americans or, then it says, let's look at the structure and see if the structure is doing something. And structures are not simply neutral. Structures are designed to do something affirmative. And so when we see uh, a, a group historically not performing well in relationship to the goal, then it suggests that maybe something's off. It, gives us, it causes us to do more investigation. But I also want to suggest that it's not just the groups that are doing worse than the average or doing worse than the general population. We also have to see how the general population is performing in relationship to that goal as well. Um, um, so that data then tells us to look more carefully at how the structure and culture works. Um, and then see if there's some things that's actually particularly pernicious for each group. Uh, for example, being blind or being uh, a long way from health care um, or, or not having a, a health care that actually is sensitive to uh, the cultural or specific needs of different groups. Number four is assess and understand the structures that support or impede each group or community from achieving the universal goal. So looking at the structures. So we tend to be, we know, we oftentimes say, you know, being uh, colorblind or genderblind, not seeing, that's actually not appropriate. We want to be sensitive to how um, race and, and gender and sexual orientation and, and ableism actually functions in society. And the way they function oftentimes is not simply some nefarious person saying, I don't like black people. Oftentimes the way they function is through structures. And so we need to not only be uh, uh, race and group sensitive, we also need to be structural sensitive. And structures are the most invisible. We don't notice them. We don't notice the airplane. We don't notice the bathrooms at stadiums. We don't notice um, uh, the escalator. We don't notice um, uh, you know whether someone can can um, uh, has money or not. You know that. So so part of the thing is to bring attention to that and to see how the structures are inter, uh, um, interacting with populations. But it takes a special effort because the United States and West tends to be uh, what uh, Tilly calls methodological individualists. We focus on the individual as opposed to. Um, is there a structure that's actually affecting groups differently? Uh, so we have to sort of develop that site for structures. Who was the author that you cited? Tilly. Tilly? He wrote a book called Durable Inequality. The last step is to develop and implement targeted strategies for each group to reach the universal goal. That's right. And so when you do that, if you, if you, if you achieve that, 
you've actually addressed disparities. If every group gets to that universal goal, the disparities are gone. But too often under equity, and this is why I prefer target universalism, equity 2.0, instead people say we want to close the gap. You do want to do that, but you don't want to just close the gap. You actually want to get everyone to that universal goal. And you need to state what that is. And you can't assume that the favorite group, whether it's whites or men or straight people, that they have what they need. Nor do you want to just focus on the most vulnerable. Uh, you really, targeted universalism actually takes every group into consideration in relationship to structures, in relationship to culture, and then look at how do you get them to that universal. And then lastly, where do we go from here as far as pitching it to policymakers, to people who can up implement it, use it actually to be able to start creating some of the changes that we're talking about? Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, about 20 years ago, actually longer now, I guess almost 30 years ago, in the early 90s, there were three of us uh, that really was pushing the idea of equity. Not the, I'm sure there were others as well, but these two people I worked with, I was one of the people, Another one was Angela Glover Blackwell uh, from PolicyLink. Another one was Manuel Pastor. And we'd go around the country talking about equity. And, and literally, we'd get uninvited to meetings. It's like, why are you talking about equity? Um, you know, we want to treat people, everyone the same. And now, and, and it seemed like, not that it matters, it seemed like a radical idea. Um, and um, when you're actually saying structures don't work, you're talking about transforming the structures themselves, not simply adapting people to these uh, flawed structures. Um, I think, to some extent, that's what we are with target universalism. As we've gotten into the equity work, and there's been some slippage because the work around equity uh, has actually, I, from my perspective, oftentimes uh, been narrowly defined to only focus on disparities. So if you go, you mentioned health, I'm um, chair of population health for Southeast Michigan. And if you go on any website on health, there are all this talk about closing disparities. But there's very little talk about what are the goals that everyone should achieve, including the group that's considered favored. Um, and, as, and as I said, if we do this right, it's not just how to operationalize things, but it's also how to talk about it. The good news is there are a number of efforts around the country that actually use target universalism. Um, I just came back from Washington, and they're looking at pre-K. They have a universal pre-K program that they're trying to implement in the state of Washington. But they recognize that not all the students, not all the young people are situated the same. And so they're trying to figure out, well, what, do, what does that mean in terms of operation? Um, there's um, um, health care. Uh, again, we're working with people um, on, in different parts of the country that are basically saying, how do we actually look at health care if we acknowledge that people are the same? Uh, and then some of it is, I mean, for example, if you look at suicide, which is very high and growing in the black and Latino community, excuse me, black and white community, but it's highest in, in the Native American community, the obvious question is why? Uh, are there some cultural and structural things that help us understand what's going on in the Native American community that we might miss if we just have a universal, universal approach? And the answer is yes. Uh, and we know what some of those things are, but we have to look for them. They don't just appear. Uh, so there's already, and we're involved in a number of these efforts with the Native American communities, with the schools, with healthcare. Uh, right here in California, um, there's a lot of work with a number of the large um, groups who are beginning to sort of apply this. Um, so I, I, I found that people, when they begin to understand it, and there's some 
simple things like universal goal, targeted strategies based on system structures. That's pretty simple. But it becomes very nuanced. It becomes very layered. We worked with groups in Sacramento, uh, which had uh, young babies dying uh, right after birth. And the highest rate was among uh, African-American populations, pretty high rate among Latinos, but a, a, a rate that was unacceptable you know, even among white babies. Um, and there was a debate. Do you just focus on the black babies? Um, or do you focus on all? Um, and if you focus on all, how do you sort of think about the different approaches? And, um, and this was actually the Sacramento Foundation. I think it's, they'd be pleased for me to mention it. But they focused on, they did target universalism. Now there were questions about priorities. Do we have enough resources? Um, and one of the things about target universalism is that resources are oftentimes elastic. And if the groups you're focusing on is a marginalized groups, those resources tend to tighten. If it's, uh, if, if it's a popular program, that is, if, if it's the we that we care about, if it's, a, uh, if it's my family, I'm willing to spend a lot of resources. If it's other people's family, mm, maybe not so much. So uh, what happened in Sacramento is that the amount of resources for this effort greatly expanded, in part because they did focus on, uh, focus on it through a targeted universalism approach. But that also meant that special or different resources were going to um, the black community in this case. Uh, also, I should say that different communities should participate in helping to develop those universals. We shouldn't just assume all the time that we know what they are and impose them on groups. And that concludes our conversation with John A. Powell, director of the Haas Institute and professor of law and African-American studies here at UC Berkeley. To obtain a copy of the Targeted Universalism Primer, check out our website at haasinstitute.berkeley.edu slash targeteduniversalism. There, we also have a short animated explainer video on targeted universalism, which is worth checking out. For a transcript of this episode and links to many more interviews on the variety of topics we cover, visit us online at haasinstitute.berkeley.edu slash who belongs. Thank you for listening. <laughs>